The courier presses his forehead against layers of glass, argon, high-impact plastic. He watches a gunship traverse the city's middle distance like a hunting wasp, death slung beneath its thorax in a smooth black pod. Those are the two opening lines to William Gibson's Virtual Light. Virtual Light is the first book in a trilogy of books called The Bridge Trilogy. And trilogy is used in a loose sense when it comes to William Gibson's works. They're not trilogies in that they continue one story across three books. They're trilogies in the sense that they take place in the same time with similar ideas and similar locations and maybe similar characters, but each book, at least in the books of his that I've read that are in trilogies, tell a complete story. And the story of Virtual Light is that of two characters, and let's just say a third minor character who we get the point of views of. It's a sci-fi thriller, but not sci-fi in the galactic sense, but sci-fi in the near future sense. And I'll read the back of the book just to give you a sense of how the book pitches itself. 2005. Welcome to NoCal and SoCal, the uneasy sister states of what used to be California. Here the millennium has come and gone, leaving in its wake only stunned survivors. In Los Angeles, Barry Rydell is a former armed response rent-a-cop, now working for a bounty hunter. Chevette Washington is a bicycle messenger, turned pickpocket, who impulsively snatches a pair of innocent-looking sunglasses. But these are no ordinary shades. What you can see through these high-tech specs can make you rich, or get you killed. Now Barry and Chevette are on the run, zeroing in on the digitized heart of Dad America, where pure information is the greatest high, and a mind can be a terrible thing to crash. It's interesting reading that book summary, because it gives you a sense of the world, but I think it misses some of the most fascinating parts to me at least, but that gives you a sense of it. So the book is set in 2005, slightly dystopic, a dark future. The book was written in 1993, originally published on September 6th, 1993, and takes place in 2005. So 12, or that would be, yep, 12 years, set 12 years from when it was published, which now it's been 16 years since the book was located and nearly 30 years since it was published, which I think is uh, will play more into my thoughts and aspects of the review, but some more setup. So I would describe the book as cyberpunk, but I think it helps to define cyberpunk, which to me cyberpunk is this sort of gritty genre of earth-based near future um, where technology and large corporations have really degraded society and humans are being exploited and it's, it doesn't seem like the kind of place you'd want to live unless you were really wealthy and rich. And I, I, I don't think of it as much as this book doesn't give me I guess it does give, give a sense of like Blade Runner as the canonical cyberpunk imagery uh, it's hard to escape, and I, there are senses of that. 
especially since the book does play, take place in Los Angeles and San Francisco, which I think seems like an ode to Blade Runner the movie, which takes place in L.A., and then the book, which takes place in San Francisco, which is kind of this interesting aside that I hadn't really realized. But um, I think... I, I like fear the term cyberpunk because I think it gives a sense of... I think cyberpunk in 2021... I don't think it represents what this book is, even if it's categorized that way. And that, like, Gibson isn't... Gibson as the sort of, like, purveyor of this genre. I think what it became in popular culture and what it is now today is different than the cyberpunk he's writing and this sort of, like, near-future sci-fi that he writes. It just seems different. And I guess the point I'm trying to say is that Gibson, who at this point had written three novels on his own in a trilogy of cyberpunk thrillers and then writes another cyberpunk thriller, I think he's aware and weary of what that genre could become and what writing his version of sci-fi could become. And um, this book doesn't seem like a parody of itself and of the genre, and his more recent books don't either, which just seems really important to mention because I think there is... You could go into some older sci-fi and older cyberpunk and think that, but um, I think he does a really good job of navigating a sort of genre that was budding that is partially his responsibility. Anyway, uh, so it's a third-person book written in the third person, past tense. The first chapter is written in the present tense as a sort of set dressing, and then it goes in the third person, uh, alternating between two main characters, Chevette Washington, who is a bike messenger who lives in San Francisco, and uh, Barry Rydell, who is the rent-a-cop, both of whom were mentioned in the back of the cover description. And then there's a third character, Yamazaki, who has some shorter chapters, who sort of adds a little flavor and um, ties some certain things together. Um, and Yamazaki is this, I want to say sociologist or anthropologist. Let me look at my notes. He is a sociologist studying the bridge from Japan. He's in San Francisco studying it, and um, I think it's a good time to introduce the bridge, which is sort of the virtual light, Iduro, and then All Tomorrow's Parties are the three books in this trilogy. The trilogy is called the Bridge Trilogy because they all have this setting of the bridge, which is the Golden Gate Bridge that is no longer used for automobile traffic and has instead become this sort of homeless encampment where people have built up structures, restaurants, homes, all these different things along the bridge, and people live there sort of like in in the fringes of society. And um, one of the characters, Shivette Washington, the bike messenger, lives with a character named Skinner, who uh, is older, he's not in good health, and she takes care of him. So Yamazaki comes to the bridge to study the bridge, ends up connecting with Skinner, to learn more about the bridge and Skinner and his role in the bridge. Um, and that sort of all ties together. So those are the three main characters. Um, and uh, let me give you my my history with William Gibson, because I think that'll help paint what I'm about to say. So 
I really like William Gibson. I think he has this really unique like post-golden age sci-fi perspective where he has these really interesting ideas that are really grounded of taking certain ideas or things that he sees happening and extrapolating them forward. Um, so he's got these interesting ideas. He combines them with what I think is incredible writing. His descriptions of places and objects and um, the world that he's creating are just impeccable impeccable language. I think I think he's got a way with words that is sparse and cool and thoughtful and pushes me as a reader in a way that I just absolutely love and haven't really seen too much done. Um, another author who similarly works with language is Anne Lucky and Ancillary Justice. Totally different setting and totally different trappings of space opera as compared to near-future dystopic cyberpunk techno-thrillers, but a really similar um, like coolness to the writing. And coolness may sound trite as a way to describe it, but I think it actually really encapsulates a lot of what I like about it. And then Gibson has these mm, settings that I really like and enjoy. Usually they're cities and Usually they're near future, so it's not like today and then, you know, we're off in Mars and space or whatever, like, kind of like Leviathan Wakes or like the Expanse series. That's like a totally different kind of sci-fi where Gibson stuff is like grounded, gritty, um, taking the world that we live in today and extrapolating it just a little bit further. And uh, I really like those settings. I find them, they make my imagination real and I can picture it and I can feel like I'm there and it's not so farly abstracted that he has to he just can describe what's different he doesn't have to describe like an entire planet or an entire colony or whatever so um yeah I just like the settings he works in and uh the the genres that he almost always works in with his novels is thrillers so you have this sort of like action happening within the setting within the characters and there's usually different parties at play and stakes are pretty high. And uh, it's about the like action happening and the resolution of the thriller. So he, he's able to work within that genre and tell different stories with different characters and different settings and places and ideas. I think he does it really, really well. Uh, I've read Burning Chrome, which is a collection of short fiction, which is, I think, fantastic. Some of the best writing, some of my favorite short stories in there. Um, I've read the Sprawl Trilogy, which is Neuromancer, Count Zero, and Mona Lisa Overdrive, which I really loved all three of those. Read them almost back to back to back, maybe with some shorter novels in between them, but just flew through those. Read The Peripheral, which is the first book in his latest trilogy called Jackpot Trilogy. Uh, the most recent of his novels, Agency, is the sequel or the follow-up to The Peripheral. And then I've read a bunch of his nonfiction, so his essays and watched videos of him and just kind of like am fascinated with the character of Gibson, which I think definitely influences my thoughts on virtual light because uh, I think I'm predisposed to like his writing and his works and um, how he goes about writing. So um, virtual light is in a lot of ways more of the same 
of what you're going to get with Gibson, but he's got a lot of interesting ideas. I think the characters, particularly Chevette and the setting of the bridge, are unique standouts that I love and uh, stand out to me about this book and made it enjoyable and worth reading. Uh, let's talk about my reading experience with Virtual Life. I read it over a month and a half in like big chunks. I read a third of it. Let's see, it's 350 pages, or just about. Uh, at least this paperback version is. You can see I really uh, marked it up and highlighted it. Just had a really good time reading it and uh, reading it that way. So I read it in like three big chunks. The first chunk, I was on the train to and from New York City with Becky, where we went on a little weekend getaway. It was great train reading. Picked it up, started reading through it, and I read like 100, 120 pages. Um, among while reading some other things. And just fell into the world and the characters. Then I read the next third while we were on uh, vacation in Montana. We visited my parents. And then I read the last third since returning there. So a little bit of a slow burn for me. I think when I started reading it, I thought, oh yeah, I'm probably going to just fly through this in a week or less. But I would read it, sit with it, and it would occupy a portion of my mental space, and I enjoyed that time that I'd spent thinking about the characters in the world, and I uh, enjoyed the slow burn aspect of it. So uh, I think there's a way where you could read this book and plow through it, but I read it over a month and a half and enjoyed that slowness, and I was able to keep what was happening in my head with pretty low effort, and I uh, took some notes and things, so that probably helped too. Um, let's talk more about the premise of the book and intro the book. So Chevette Washington, she's a bike messenger, lives on the bridge with Skinner, as I said. She is making a delivery, and this all happens very early in the book, so uh, no spoilers yet. She steals a pair of sunglasses. She thinks they're sunglasses. They're actually virtual light glasses, which I think in today's parlance we would think of as virtual reality glasses. From this guy, he's a suit at a party. You can just tell he's wealthy, he's kind of creepy. She steals the glasses and makes a run for them. But the problem is people really want these glasses. And um, some consequences ensue because of the theft of the glasses. Chevette, so that's that's happening. In parallel, you have Barry Rydell, who I'll just probably call Rydell from on out. He's this rent-a-cop who's from, uh, like, Kansas or Kentucky. One of the two, I forget. Um, and he is, he's, he's got this sort of problem. He sees something, like an opportunity to go for something as a member of law enforcement, and he goes for it when he probably shouldn't. So he sees the opportunity, he tries to seize it, and usually messes up and then pays the consequences. So he was a cop. He messes up, shoots a guy that he probably shouldn't have, ends up... Um, making his way out to LA as a way to like have a new start and then him being in LA leads to uh, eventually him and Chevette's paths converging and like that's like the first half of the book so it's really interesting that the back of the book goes there and it describes that but I guess it makes sense because you need that hook of them knowing they're going to converge and then what happens there and then the way that they meet together is really handled well and uh, interesting and uh, worth, you know, the half of the book that it takes to get there. 
some people want those sunglasses that Chevette steals, and it's about um, those glasses as a plot device. They're more than a MacGuffin. They're not just like the Maltese Falcon and the Maltese Falcon. They they have they give access to something that uh, has immense value and plays within the plot, and it's really important. What I like about these characters, particularly Chevette, is it's like she's got a sense of like um, like she's younger, right? She's maybe in her early twenties, and she's trying to figure out her place in the world, and she's got this backstory and how she ends up in San Francisco. I think is handled well, and then. So the chapters where she's a bike messenger and making deliveries and Gibson's writing and describing San Francisco and what it's like to be a bike messenger are just really enthralling and engrossing. You feel like you're there and he's able to take bike messengering and extrapolate it a little further into the future and that's handled super well. Uh, So I really like Chevette and her story and then when she gets with Rydell and they're figuring out what to do with glasses, it's really, um, I think they play off each other because Rydell is this sort of like He's almost like a, he's not quite an action hero, but he's, you know, he's like a law enforcement officer. He's like a cop, you know, so you kind of get that sense of like, he's he's pretty bland. And then you have Chevette, who's pretty eccentric, like I, her hair is described, I think she has a mohawk, but it never just says the word mohawk, but she kind of has this hair and she seems like a punk almost and wears this leather jacket and, um, yeah, you just get this cool sense of them coming together and uh, how they play off each other works really well. Um, the future that Gibson describes is really plausible, or it feels plausible, even now, still, you know, almost 30 years from when he wrote it. Even though it was set in 2005, in 2021, it still feels like that could happen, this sort of, like, group of people living on the bridge and some of the, like, future technology and the ideas he has of what could happen and the impacts of virtual reality. So I like that. It doesn't feel... I think it's possible you go back and you read some of the... some sci-fi and even, like, Neuromancer and some of the things where it, like, describes technology, like, with cassettes and decks and um, certain aspects, and, like, it feels dated or it feels implausible, and you're kind of, like, in this alternate reality. Like, I think Alien... And the technology in Alien is this example where it's like um, technology went a different direction than what it does in kind of older sci-fi. But with virtual light, it still seems plausible. It doesn't seem like it seems like we're not there yet, but it seems like it could happen. So the rate at which Gibson thought of 2005, things happening, um, things happen a bit slower or are happening a bit slower, but some of it is coming is, is, is extrapolation seem like they could be plausible, which I like and makes this world really interesting and enjoyable. There are a lot of different ideas present in virtual light that I loved reading about and thinking about that uh, I won't focus too much on the plot because the plot is what keeps it moving and summarizing the plot doesn't do it justice because it's like through the plot that you have these ideas that are fleshed out and the characters that are expanded upon. Um, so I won't talk too much about the plot. 
other than let me just say this, which is that from start to finish, Gibson, Gibson can tell a story and tell it well. And it's a contained story. It starts, it has a climax, it finishes, and Gibson is able to tell a good story and deliver on it and tie things together in a way that makes sense. And I find he's consistently able to do it and it impresses me every time and it makes the experience really enjoyable. Where, like, other books... And this is a weird example, but I think it's important. It's like, you look at Franz Kafka and his novels, like, you look at The Trial, he's got a lot of interesting ideas, but he's not able to tell a story. Like, he doesn't have the skills of storytelling where you have a beginning, middle, and an end, and it wraps up and uh, feels satisfying. And maybe that's part of the appeal of Kafka, and Kafka's probably not the most appropriate person to bring in here. But, like, I think Gibson has the fundamentals of storytelling down, and he has a genre that he likes working within, so then that's able to be the vessel for the ideas and the characters. And I like that. I think it works really well. There's never time where the book drags on, or I was uninterested, or I was just like, oh, come on, which totally happens in books. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like, it's a fast-paced, slow burn, which I think is really weird to say, but he does a good job and delivers on the story and the plot. And uh, worth seeing to the end, he doesn't drop the ball, he totally sticks the landing, and I like it. Let's talk about some of the ideas in it. There is, from the beginning, and then it becomes more punctuated, this idea of TV as religion, which, if Gibson's writing this book in the early 90s, that's like peak, peak television, right? Where television and cable television have proliferated, and... It's pre-internet, like pre-internet today as we know it. It's pre-smartphones. So there's not this sense of how I think television has been replaced by social media and the internet. And there's this idea of like this religion where people see Jesus and Christ. I guess Christ and Jesus are the same within the television, within the shows. And it's like you be a good Christian or whatever the name of the religion is. I forget by watching more and more television, but watching the right amount of television or watching the right shows and movies, which I, I think is like really astute and a real um, just interesting idea to think about where there's one character who watches like some David Cronenberg films. I think he watches Videodrome and then becomes kind of an outcast within that society of people because he watches these films that, you know, aren't, appropriate within the, that group of people. I think I kind of botched that description, but it's really interesting. The idea of TV as religion. I like thinking about that. There is, as I think with a lot of like cyberpunk, uh, this privatization of everything, and then those private corporations wreaking havoc and like exploiting things, which is like 100% what happens and is happening and continues to happen and is happening with like big tech, but maybe in uh, like similarly nefarious ways but in slightly different ways where um a big part of this is the privatization of security forces and that ties into Rydell being a rental cop and this sort of like way that those forces can like exploitate the system um to get what they want there is as the back of the book description says california has been split into two states and you get hints of that sort of like nation states and places splitting up that um, I think helps set the place that 
San Francisco and LA are two different places and what happens there. You got virtual reality slash virtual light, which is talked about a little bit and you get hints of it. But it's like, for what is the title of the book, I think it's actually a pretty minor role within the whole story, as are the sunglasses. Uh, they, they play a role in the story and both are described, but they're not... They're not the crux of it, I would say, which I like. Because I think it helps it age well. Um, there's a lot of talk about AIDS and the destruction of AIDS on society. And then, like, this cure that's found and the person who's responsible for the cure being this both lauded figure, like a savior figure, but then also hated by people. Um, which I think rereading the first few chapters after finishing it, I didn't realize how much he plays through it. It's this guy named J.D. Shapley. And, uh, yeah, Gibson's got all these different ideas and they're all tied together. Um, which I think does tie into San Francisco and the sort of, like, um, like, I don't, I don't know, still modern. I think that community, like, the gay community still exists in San Francisco, but... Um, like historically, especially if you think I think about Oki's writing it in the early 1990s, like that is like what San Francisco is like known for is this like open community of like gay people living there and um, ahead of the rest of the country, like becoming accepting of that. And I think I think that ties into the setting of the bridge in San Francisco and J.D. Shapley and Gibson talking and thinking about AIDS and the impact it has on the world. So um, that seems like a nugget of prescience or not prescience, but like taking what's happening in society and in the location that he's writing about and like extrapolating it forward, um, which I think is really, I liked reading about it and thinking about it and uh, what Gibson does with it. And it, I think it's like all done tastefully, which like I think a lot of things Gibson does is pretty tasteful and I don't see much immaturity in his writing. Sometimes sometimes and especially in his older works, there's like this hint of like a sort of like a male dominated view of of sexuality. But I think in general that starts to dissipate as his works go on and on, which I like. like. I think that's an area where he's growing. Also, Gibson started writing in his late 20s. So by the time he's writing this, he's probably 40 or older. And so he has a certain maturity to his work and his, his writing that I like and I think comes through in these ideas he has that he embeds and imbues in the story. So I, I like that. And I think it's interesting reading an older sci-fi work about those ideas that he's thinking of and um, just thinking about how he thought about them, what what it could happen, or what could happen there. Uh, there is, of course, like hackers and a little bit of computer stuff, but computers aren't really like the main. Computers as like a person sitting on a keyboard typing aren't the main aspect of this book. But there are hackers, and they play a role in the story and uh, drugs and drug abuse and like the impact of drug use in rural America. I think comes through quite a lot. As I'm reading this book, and as I've read, while reading almost all of his books in a short stories, I 
find myself thinking, like, this would make a really fantastic movie. And it's wild to me that Gibson has written book after book after book that is a standalone story, but maybe in a world or universe where it could be expanded upon. But he's never had an adaptation of one of his novels. It's always fallen through. Like, Neuromancer has been attempted to be adapted multiple times, but it falls through. And then... I think Count Zero and Monolisa Overdrive could totally be movies. I think when when I think about authors' works getting adapted, it seems almost it's confounding that his work hasn't been adapted. He has one movie called Giant Mnemonic that was adapted into a movie that he wrote the script and it starts Keanu Reeves and it's kind of known as this like big flop that I haven't watched, but I've read the short story. I'd like to watch it. But he sort of, he did that. He wrote a script for Alien 3 that got scrapped. And I look at his works and his writing and his world and his universe and his characters, and I just can't understand why his works haven't been adapted. Now, his book, The Peripheral, is being adapted into an Amazon television show, which I think is really, could totally work as a TV show, even more so than a movie, because its scope seems a bit bigger than a movie. But, like, when I think about these books that he wrote in the 80s and the 90s, I just don't get why they weren't made into movies. Because they are, like, perfect for movies. I don't think they're, like, baiting to be made into movies. I think they, the writing and his words and language tell a story that is unique to fiction and prose that I like. But, wow, this... I can just picture the movie and sort of fill in the characters with these like loose sketches in my head. So in some regards, I'm grateful that his work hasn't been adapted because I get to picture it on my own and bring my own vision to the table of the world and the characters. But on the other hand, it just seems so ripe for adaptation. And um, I just can't believe that it's never happened. And not even just Neuromancer, his sort of most known work, but... um, Virtual Light, and any of the sprawl books, and a bunch of his short stories. And I know there's another movie of his, New New Rose Hotel, or... Um, that was made in a movie with Willem Dafoe. I haven't seen that either, but it's not supposed to be so great. I think the 90s just owe an incredible amount to Gibson. The 90s and the aughts of sci-fi adaptations, and even what, like, modern sci-fi is today, or, like, gritty sci-fi is today. And I think... Yeah, I just... It's shocking that his works haven't been adapted. And I think it's unfortunate, but if you look at sort of the authors who stand the test of time, it's usually those who have their works adapted and refreshed and renewed. And I would like to think that there's still chances of Gibson's work getting adapted, even, you know, decades later, and that they would hold up and stand the test of time. Uh, so, yeah, interesting that hasn't been adapted, because I totally could see it being adapted. I like that the community on the bridge, or, like, the residents of the bridge really feel like a community. It's a, it's well done, well handled. You have these different locations and characters and people and places that uh, come together really well. I think about Gibson's obsession with Japan and I wonder if it's because he sees he saw Japan in the 80s like the 70s 80s 90s as like the future and sort of if that 
was the precursor to, I think, sort of Japanese culture infiltrating, infiltrating, that sounds kind of negative, but sort of like fusing with American culture in a major way where like anime and Ghost in the Shell, cyberpunk have sort of become just part of popular culture. Um, so reading it now, you're kind of like, okay, Gibson, like you really like Japan and talking about Japan. But I guess if I think back to the 80s and 90s, maybe that felt really new and interesting. So uh, sometimes I'm like, all right, enough about Japan. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, yeah, I guess at the time that seemed like, and maybe still at times does feel like where the future could be. Something that Gibson does throughout all of the works of his that I've read is tell stories and introduce concepts in a way that might be a little bit obtuse at first, hard to understand. But if you go into reading his books and his works, you need to be patient. Otherwise, I think you might be frustrated and feel like you're lost, but just trust that he will explain things and it will become clear over time. And that the time where a concept or an idea or a location is introduced, and then the time where he'll explain it in a way that doesn't feel like it's expository or beating you over the head, but just it becomes clear and it clicks, like relish that time. Because I think that level of control of an author to be able to intentionally sort of put you in this location where you're not really sure exactly what's happening or what that means or who that organization is, uh, is intentional. Like they, the author wants you to feel that way. At first it can be off-putting, but Gibson said that this is the type of work he enjoys reading. You can go back to it with a new sort of clarity when you reread it and it's challenging and interesting and makes you do some work. I love that about his writing. And I think that if you're not used to that or you don't have a mindset going in of like, it'll be explained or it'll become clear or it's okay if I'm not exactly following it or sometimes having to reread passages, it may seem like, I don't understand this. This seems like bad writing, but uh, I think it's really intentional. I think it's done well. And I think it creates a feeling in the reader that not many authors create and I really like that. And that's a unique aspect of his writing. And that's certainly present in virtual light. And the more Gibson you read, the more I think it becomes easier to sit with that feeling. And I really enjoy that about his work. Let's dig into a quote that, that's like that, where he gives some breadcrumbs of what happened historically and kind of creates and builds the world. I think, I think he's really fantastic at that, and I love it. So here's a quote from page 227 from the paperback. This quote is about, has to do with Yamazaki, the character from Japan who's studying San Francisco on the bridge, and like, you get these hints of things having happened in Japan, and that has influence and impact on the story, but it's never just outright, like, explained in detail, but you get hints of it, so. Godzilla. Yamazaki shivered, recalling television images of Tokyo's fall. He had been in Paris with his parents. Now a new city rose there, its buildings grown, literally, floor by floor. You take something like that, which is in this chapter about San Francisco and the bridge and Yamazaki being with Skinner, and you get this hint of, like, of Tokyo's fall. But it's never explained what happened in Tokyo necessarily, or 
Um, it's buildings grown literally floor by floor. Um, those ideas of like a building growing and this sort of like pseudo-organic matter, it's never just fully outright explained, but you get hints of it. And that, those breadcrumbs, that way of world building, I think Gibson just always, always does so well, and I like that a lot. Because then I fill in the spaces of it. And I think that's like a beauty of his works is filling in the spaces. Here's another quote related to that. This is from page 275, related to the growing of buildings. That ties into the story a little bit more. So, um, this might be a spoiler. So, um, maybe a spoiler warning from throughout the rest of this video. So, spoiler warning. And uh, this video, this audio. They're going to rebuild San Francisco from the ground up, basically. Like they're doing in Tokyo. They'll start by layering a grid of 17 complexes into the existing infrastructure. 80-story office-slash-residential, retail-slash-residence in the base. Completely self-sufficient. Variable-pitch parabolic reflectors, steam generators, new buildings, man. They'll eat their own sewage. Who will eat sewage? The buildings. They're going to grow them, Rydell. Like they're doing now in Tokyo. Like the Maglev Tunnel. Sunflower, Chevette said, then looked like she regretted it. That is, that's kind of like the crux of the, like what's in the glasses, now that we're in spoiler territory, of this information on the glasses is like these people's plans of uh, changing San Francisco. And um, yeah, I won't, I won't spoil more than that, but that's sort of the crux, is that these uh, microorganisms are going to, not microorganisms, micro-machines, makes me think a lot of Metal Gear Solid and uh, nano machines, I think, in like uh, Metal Gear Solid 4 and stuff. So I wonder, yeah, it's just a really interesting idea that I think has permeated sci fi and different pop culture um, that I like. But um, yeah, that idea of growing structures and the organic growth of things, or you know, like pseudo organic, is just, I really like thinking about. Um, let's talk a little bit about the ending because I'm a sucker for endings. I think an ending can save a book or a movie. I think an ending can ruin a book or a movie. Um, so let's talk about the ending. So Rydell and Chevette come together. They have the glasses. Um, intense security. And Dad America, they want the glasses. And there's a bunch of stuff I'm going to skip over because that's part of the fun of reading the book. But Rydell is able to tie in characters and places and things from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, and all comes together and culminates in the last two chapters in a way that I think is beautifully orchestrated and done. Where Gibson, and I've seen him do this in other books too, is like, he doesn't like end it with the climax and there's a little bit of downfall. He just like, that's like basically the end of the book is when things all happen. So it's this like long buildup. The thing, the main event happens and then there's a little bit of wrap up. And uh, Gibson loves happy endings. That's present here. Uh, I think he ties it all together and totally sticks to landing. Uh, I like the ending and how it comes together. I'd say, like, keep track of characters. And, um, yeah. Like, the way it all ties together and is almost circular and it ends almost basically where it started, I love and is handled well. Uh, Chevette and Rydell's relationship and the implications there, I think, are it's quite nice and heartwarming. And then Yamazaki and Skinner and what happens with them. 
and kind of finding out some more info, it's, it's very Gibson. Like, <laughs> there's some darkness and grittiness in the story, but he loves happy endings. And I like that. I don't, I don't think it needs to end and be sad, depressing, or shocking. And, um, yeah, I think, I think when I look at all those books I've read, there's happy endings. So I, I like that. I think the looking at the ending and having read the whole book is that I think it's consistent throughout. There's no parts that drag. There's no parts that I didn't enjoy. It didn't feel like a page turner or like a popcorn book because there's more to it with the ideas and the characters that I found interesting. But throughout, it's consistently good, which, uh, which I think is really great. Here's a quote about a pandemic that happened that just seemed relevant and worth sharing on page uh, 265. This is uh, chapter 20, 29, called Dead Mall. Little excerpt. He'd been dreaming about Mrs. Armbruster's class, fifth grade at Oliver Elementary. They were about to be let out because LearningNet said there was too much Kansas City flu around to keep the kids in Virginia and Tennessee in school that week. They were all wearing these molded white paper masks the nurses had left on their seats that morning. Mrs. Armbruster had just explained the meaning of the word pandemic. Poppy Markov, who sought who sat next to him and already had tits out to hear, had told Mrs. Armbruster that her daddy said the KC flu could kill you in the time it took to walk out to the bus. Mrs. Armbruster, wearing her own mask, the micro-poor kind from the drugstore, started in about the word panic, tying that into pandemic because of the root. And that was where Rydell woke up. Something about Gibson's way of language I just like, and... Um, when King, Stephen King does this like, to a real extreme degree, but Gibson does it a little bit where when he is writing through the point of view of Rydell, it feels like Rydell's thoughts, even though it's in the third person at times. And then, but it's not exactly his thoughts. It's not like, oh, Rydell thought, you know, I'm hungry or whatever. It's just subtly interwoven. And then same with Chevette. And then you like see Rydell from Chevette's perspective in Chevette's chapters, and you see Chevette from Rydell's perspective in Rydell's chapters, and I, I just total sucker for that. Um, let's talk a little bit about the bridge, some quotes from the bridge that I really like. So, page 194, there's a great bridge quote that describes it. But none of it had to... Let me restart. But none of it done to any plan, that is the bridge. Not that he could t see... Not like a mall where they plug a business into a slot and wait to see whether it works or not. This place had just grown. It looked like one thing patched onto the next until the whole span was wrapped in this formless mass of stuff, and no two pieces of it matched. There was a different material anywhere you looked, almost none of it being used for what it had originally been intended for. He passed stalls faced with turquoise formica, fake brick fragments, fragments of broken tile worked into swirls and sunbursts and flowers. One place, already shuttered, was covered with green and copper slabs of desoldered component board. Yeah, he just paints the bridge super, super well in a way that I'm excited to spend more time in the bridge, I guess, in the other books. Here's another quote, page 259. Chevette knew Fontaine could fix it so people could watch the tower there and the lift, watch for strangers. People did that for each other on the bridge, and Fontaine was always owed a lot of favors because he was the main electricity man. Just given a sense of the community there, and I, I really like the community aspect of the bridge. You can find 
the source for the inspiration for Virtual Light and the Bridge Trilogy in a short story called Skinner's Room, which Gibson was commissioned to write for an art exhibit in San Francisco. And, uh, yeah, you can find the PDF online. It's worth a read through, I think it sets the tone for the location of the bridge and Skinner and Chevette. Um, and just, like, establishes the bridge as the central place for the book. So, um, those are my thoughts on William Gibson's Virtual Light. I think, I think it's in the vein of his past works. Continues what he started in the Sprawl Trilogy. It's a good read. Uh, enjoyable. It's a, could definitely be quick because of the, a quick read because of the the thriller aspect and you're just curious what's going to happen but if you enjoy spending your time in the world and with the characters you can definitely slow it down and read through it at a slower pace like I did and I enjoyed that about it um, I think Gibson does a great job with the characters the settings are just phenomenal primarily San Francisco and Los Angeles and specifically the bridge Chevette stands out as a character I really enjoyed and um, the chapters of her delivering things as a bike messenger just seems so well. Feel like you're right there, riding through the city. Um, I think he sticks the landing. It's just an enjoyable book, and then you have this entertaining story mixed with these intriguing ideas. And to me, it, and then with the third thing of, I think is great writing. Fuse those together, and I think you have a really solid book. A uh, really solid sci-fi and your future techno thriller. That I think if you like that or any of it sounds interesting, I'd say give it a shot. And I think it'd be a fine starting place. It's not my favorite of his that I've read, but it's totally up there. It's not not a dud, and um, it just keep, kind of keeps on doing what I already like. Which uh, yeah, I'm happy to have read it. Looking forward to reading Itero soon, which is the next book in the Bridge trilogy, and. Um, just kind of like keeping on reading through William Gibson's books and enjoying them um, and uh, just solid consistency and a sort of strong vision for the world that he's creating in these books that seems unparalleled and seems highly influential those are my thoughts on Virtual Light hope you check it out if you're interested and thank you very much